Most of the laugh tracks on television were recorded in the early 1950s. These days, most of the people you hear laughing are dead. <laughs> Hello, and you are here with the Boundless Book Club. Hello? Is someone there? If all the ghouls could please keep it down during book club, that would be great. Thank you. Welcome to the Boundless Book Club's spooky special. I'm Annabelle. And I'm Andrea. Today, we'll be discussing the books that give us literal chills, that make us jump up when the doorbell rings mid-chapter, and that we find completely disturbing long after the final page. This is a short list, the tip of the bloodied iceberg. And to begin, I think we should start with the creepiest picture book I have ever seen. Andrea, who was Edward Gorey? Oh, only the most fascinating visual artist slash verbal artist, I think I have to call him, to have ever lived. Didn't he have 20,000 cats? And then I realised that I mixed up the cats with the number of books. <laughs> Yes. So uh, we're going to have to we're going to have to talk about that now. This description of Edward Gorey is just the best thing ever. Gorey was a complicated, reclusive individual whose mission in life was to make everybody as uneasy as possible. He collected. Oh, God, I can't pronounce this word. Daguerreotypes. Daguerreotypes. Thank you. He collected daguerreotypes of dead babies and lived alone with 20,000 books and six cats in his New York apartment. I mean, I'm a little bit in love with him. Me too. Isn't that the most amazing thing for people to say about you after you've died? Sorry, I'm just picturing, I, I love the fact that this man actually existed and this wasn't a character from a book because that's wonderful. He is like a magical creature who actually did live. His book, The Gas ghastly crumb tinies is a beautiful book to give as a gift and it contains the best abc story to have ever been written and it's really interesting because normally abc books tend to be very popular with children and i think this would be but i don't think many parents would ever give it to a child it's a story it's a of crying shame i know it is because they need to know about this stuff it starts with, starts with A is for Amy, who fell down the stairs, followed by B is for Basil, assaulted by bears. Can you please read two more? <laughs> Do oh, you have um, any more? Yeah, C, I think, is for, let me see. C is for Clara, who wasted away. And D, I think, is for Desmond, who was chucked out of a sleigh. I love that this exists and I want to buy it immediately. It's amazing. It's a beautiful, beautiful point where art meets literature and magic happens. So it's perfect for Halloween, but also for all special times in life, really. Just, just all the time, you know, as you're eating your breakfast, just to be reminded of how it could all end in an instant, really. If you're looking for a novel, I would like to recommend a book that has been, I feel, the talk of the town for quite some time. It's called Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno Garcia. And Amazing. I think you've probably heard of it. I, so much. I've been dying <laughs> to read this, but I'm also a little bit scared. So I am holding this up to the camera, which I, I know anybody listening isn't going to be able to see, but to describe it, it's this 
cover I think everyone will absolutely recognize it's the lady in the red dress in front of the mad green Victorian wallpaper and immediately I thought yes I must have this in my life so imagine you are a young socialite in 1950s Mexico you've got your Gaulois cigarettes your fabulous flared dresses you're feeling fabulous and you're on your way to visit your cousin because she's feeling decidedly less fabulous and she's written a letter to your father to say that her husband is basically trying to murder her and they're thinking well this is a little suspicious maybe we should investigate so they go to visit her and she's living in this crumbling house and at various points throughout the book you forget completely that it is actually the 1950s she reminds you every now and then and you're kind of shocked by the reminder of the outfits and the style of the time and 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 all of that because the house that she's gone to the family the Doyle family that lived there that her cousin has married into they don't have electric light they have this generator that doesn't really work except in case of emergencies everything is done with candlelight the Doyle family is obsessed with making it kind of a slice of England and they were this mining family that have now fallen on hard times so they came out from England and they set up this silver mine and then it went into disrepair and awful things happened and you find out throughout the course of the book what went on in the mine and she's in this weird creepy house there's weird wallpaper There are all these moments where you're thinking, that's a red flag, that's a red flag, that's a red (laughs) flag. (laughs) To the point where you can see here that I actually started putting little sticky notes down wherever I noticed a red flag. So if I saw something about, for example, the, the family even brought out European earth to the house for the flower beds. And I'm thinking, hmm. Wow. I can think of a few horror stories where... Someone has been obsessed with bringing specific soil to a place. That's a red flag. (laughs) And then obviously the yellow wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, if you've read that, there's a sense of that creeping into the story as well. So it's really cool to read this just as a great gothic fiction novel. I have two questions. Is, is Is the cousin even there? Is she, does she meet her? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So she is alive. and She's alive when she gets there. Yeah. So she gets there. She sees her. She's being treated for tuberculosis, but her symptoms don't really just match tuberculosis. And she tries to keep saying that she's not all there in the head. She needs to see a psychiatrist. This isn't the cousin I remember. Is this really scary? I'm I'm quite a a chicken when it comes to scary books. Uh, if, If you can read Rebecca... Yes, you're fine. If you can read Rebecca, you can read this. I will give a trigger warning for anybody who doesn't like descriptions of pus. Oh, well, I it, do not It's like a little that. gross. Okay. It's a little gross in places, but I think it's definitely worth it. Yeah, so the other thing that I wanted to recommend, let me see. So Mexican Gothic to one side. We are moving on now to... Horacio Quiroga. So this is actually tied into Silvia Moreno-Garcia because one of the first things that I did when I was looking for more horror fiction was I looked up her recommended blog of what to read if you've got Stephen King-itis. And I found her recommendation of Horacio Quiroga. Now he was a Uruguayan novelist, poet and short story writer. He uh, died in 1937 
And the recurring theme in his stories is the struggle of man and animal to survive in the tropical jungle, which makes sense when you know that he was influenced not just by Edgar Allan Poe, but also by Rudyard Kipling, jungle Mm. settings. And mental illness and hallucinatory states is something that he was really good at. And actually, if you're reading Mexican Gothic, that's something that comes through in that as well. So if you like your horror with a little bit of magic realism, with that sort of thing happening, you're not sure what's going on in the mental state of a character, then I definitely recommend Horacio Quiroga. I've only just started reading his short stories, but the the edition I have is in Spanish, but there is a collection that she recommends in English called The Decapitated Chicken and Other Stories. Excellent. And And on the horror scale, how terrifying would you say this is? No, it's not. It's not terrifying. It's uh, I think each story just makes you feel uneasy. There's a dark twist. The running theme with everything that I'm recommended today with with everything I'm recommending today is that it instills a sense of unease and they are disturbing. But I don't think that there is anything in these books that will make you want to put down the book and run away screaming. Okay, it's like it's not like watching the ring. Right. You might want to put the book in the freezer for a little bit, but it's okay. I did that with the next book that I'll talk to you about. Oh, should we move but on But that was that? for other reasons. <laughs> we can too, yes. Uh, I did just also want to mention that when you talked about Daphne du Maurier and Rebecca, when talking about Mexican Gothic, it's actually been marketed as Daphne du Maurier meets Guillermo del Toro, which yeah. I think is 100% accurate. So moving on to the book that I needed to put in the freezer. Now, I know that I was looking for books other than Stephen King novels. Hear me out. (laughs) (laughs) So Pet Cemetery is the book that I really want to talk about. It came out in 1983. And I know Stephen King needs no introduction. And I hesitated to include it. It's a bit obvious. But I read this back in June, randomly picked it up at 3am in an airport. And I've wanted to talk to someone about it since. And Andrea, you're it. Get it? Because it Yes, is I do. Of... I do. I wish I didn't. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. So the story is about Dr. Lewis Creed and his family. He's got wife, son, and daughter, both young. They move into a new home in a town in Maine, obviously. And behind their house is a pet cemetery where children have been burying their beloved dead pets for years. And beyond that cemetery, if you walk a bit further is a powerful Indian burial ground. I think you can already tell that the power that I'm referring to means that things come back from the dead. It's no secret that that's what this book is about. For in very early on in the book, a cat, pet cat dies, they bury it, it comes back to life. And when it comes back to life, as you'd expect, it's not quite right. Oh, what and, a shame. Yeah. And very early on, you know in the back of your mind what's coming. And I'm not really giving any spoilers here when I say that once you've seen that you can bring something back from the dead, and even though as a character, you know that it's not come back right, if something happens to someone close to you and you are extremely desperate, what might you be pushed to do by madness and grief? So I'll just leave it there. And I thought that this book was going to be a quick, cheap thrill. I thought that it was going to be about bringing back animals from the dead. And there would be a a big climactic sort of animal zombie fight. And that's not what this book is at all. This is when, when Stephen King is asked about the book 
that scares him the most. He always says that The Shining is the one that readers write to him about terrifying them. And Pet Cemetery is the one that terrified him the most to the point that he didn't actually want to publish it. And he only published it because he needed to publish something because he was contracted to do so. Wow. Because it was just, it's based on real life inspiration. He and his family lived in a house that was near a very busy road where like his daughter's cat actually got run over. There was a pet cemetery and he just kind of ran with that idea. And the reason this book is so brilliant, even if you don't like horror fiction, is besides any supernatural elements, it is so beautifully written about what it means to love and then to lose someone that you love. That it's just, it's incredibly moving. And I I did not expect it to be so wonderfully about what it means to be human and what what makes us what makes it special to to love people and then to lose them and then to make peace with that wow i did not expect you to to go there with pet mm-hmm. cemetery do you think most stories are really about what makes us human if you bring it back to basics yeah and this is what i love the most about this genre of fiction i know i know supernatural stuff and fantasy and and horror isn't everyone's cup of tea and genre fiction has a particular fans group hello (laughs) but i found that the really good ones besides just giving you a bit of a a bit of a scare and a bit of a thrill do manage to say something about what it means to be human by talking about things that are otherworldly and I don't know. I just, I've really enjoyed reading all the stuff for this episode because it's made me rediscover why I love this genre so much. I don't love, I have a very active imagination when it comes to scary things. So I don't like to feed it because if I did, I don't think I'd ever leave the house. When I do read by quite by accident, something that is a bit scary. If it's well done, I obviously love it, but I suffer through it. I don't enjoy it. I was thinking about that because I'm actually a bit of a, I'm a bit of a scaredy cat when it comes to reading horror and I don't watch horror movies. I can't do it. Uh, the, yeah, me the, the only horror movies I can watch are things like A Quiet Place. I'm okay if it's like aliens and stuff. I don't mind, but anything with creepy children in houses, like no way. Oh my God, creepy children are the worst. Oh, I was just going to say that I'm still slightly traumatized by the Halloween episode we did last year when Jessica Jarvley recommended Frozen Charlotte, which was about dolls coming alive. And I haven't read it. I didn't read. I know no more about that book than what she told us on that one occasion. And I still find that really terrifying. That's the power of horror. It's the power of suggestion. It's all what your own mind runs with, right? Do you want to do a 60 second book recommendation? Fine. Okay. I'm taking you to Japan. Okay. 60 second book recommendation. Right. Let's go. It's called Audition. This is a 200 page snappy Japanese thriller by Ryu Murakami. No, he's not related to Haruki Murakami. This is completely disturbing. It reels you in with the suspense for most of the book before going completely off the deep end in a mad, gruesome way. If you like Tarantino, you'll like this book. It's very weird. It's about a widower who's looking for love, but rather than trawl through the tedious experience of dating, for some, he tries to find the right one by holding auditions for a fake part in a movie with his film producer friend. He becomes besotted with one of the actresses who tries out. There are numerous red flags, once again, as pointed out to him by side characters in the book, and he does not listen to any of them. That is amazing. 
I think this is the scariest because it's the most disturbing. It's like, it's it's a four for most of the way. And then it's an absolute nine because there is something unnecessary happens to a dog. And at that point I thought, right, this is the worst of all of them. And I nearly wanted to throw the book across the room, but I couldn't because it was an audio book and I would have broken my phone. Oh, curse you technology. Speaking of spooky, we now have with us Silvia Moreno-Garcia, a Mexican-Canadian editor and publisher and ferocious, prolific writer. Silvia, you've published a lot just this year, and to summarize, I've taken your own words from Twitter. Certain dark things, vampires, violence, gritty. Velvet was the night, 1970s, politics, noir. The return of the sorceress, fast adventure, magic. The beautiful ones, romance, drama, high society. But I feel like the attention still hasn't died down for Mexican Gothic from 2020. And that is a beautifully creepy novel we want to talk about today, as this is indeed the month of brooding dark shadows and growing dread. But first, I wonder if it would be fair to say that you do not believe in committing to one genre, both for reading and also for writing. Yeah, I bounce a lot, quite a bit. And uh, so all my books have tended to be in different subcategories or different flavors of something. In the acknowledgements for certain dark things in Mexican Gothic, uh, there was something that I really loved. There was a thank you note to your mum for letting you watch horror movies. And I think your you said your great grandmother for narrating them to you. And I just think it sounds like this love of things that go bump in the night is something that runs in the family. Yes, my mother was the person who introduced me to horror fiction. She was a big horror reader in the 1980s, which was the boom period for that type of genre. And she had a lot of the big hitters of the time in our home, Stephen King, Anne Rice, Cliff Barker, all those kinds of books. So it was my mother who introduced me to horror through short stories and then eventually novels from her collection. And I also watched quite a bit of horror movies at home with my mother and with my great-grandmother and then later on on my own so I got a full education out of that. No I started uh, going to watch horror movies pretty young I think the first horror movie that I saw I must have been like four or five years old and it was Aliens when it came out in movie theaters and my mother took me to see that because we were living in the north of Mexico in the border zone where it's very warm and the air conditioning died. There was like a blackout and so the air conditioning died out in our house. And the only place at that time that had air conditioning and that we could go to was a movie theater. It was a it was not a multiplex at the time. It was just one show and that was the only thing that was on. It was alien. So my mother just said, We're going to the movie theater to stay cool and we're gonna watch this movie and it's called Aliens. And don't worry, the monsters are not real. And so that was it. We've sat in the front row because we arrived yeah pretty late because we didn't plan on going there so we sat in the front row and I watched Aliens for the first time and so it was one of the first movies that I saw in a movie theater and then from them on we I had a lot of leeway and watching whatever I wanted so my mother gave me the video rental card with no restrictions and so I could get anything that I wanted first in Vedamax and then in VHS through the 1980s and the 1990s so I watched a lot of Roger Corman, a lot of exploitation films, a lot of that stuff on my own. So before we move on to some of the the creepier aspects and the spookier side of things, I did want to talk to you about Velvet Was the Night. Massively exciting. Congratulations on that. 
it's got a lot going on. So you've got two narrators, the historical setting, political tension, all of these things. When you're writing something like this, practically, how does that work? How do you keep everything straight? Andrea was actually asking if you if you have a spreadsheet, but she's asking what your process is. For Gilbert and Nighter had a calendar because background of this novel is a real political incident and a real political moment in time in Mexico. So I mapped out two weeks from kind of the beginning of this incident that opens the novel, The Arconazo, which is when the Mexican government basically sent a shock group to kill and beat students who were marching down the streets. And from that incident, I had it on the calendar. I knew what day had happened. And then I built uh, a timeline so that every chapter is broken down and I know what day it happened, you know, Monday, mm-hmm. Tuesday, whatever day of the month. So that one had a very uh, kind of strict structure because I had to know what was going on in that time period. If the president had said something in the newspapers on Wednesday, the 13th, I couldn't say that it happened on the 11th or something like that. So I had to adhere to the real constraints of the of the background of this political activity. I mean, it's still a war and, and it's still, I mean, the main trust of the story is basically a MacGuffin of somebody has some photographs that people want to find, but it does have kind of a solid backbone to it. So let's talk, let's talk vampires briefly, because I, I was so convinced when I started Mexican Gothic, but I was so sure that it was going to be about vampires. I was so sure that the, there were, there was something there, especially because you kept mentioning European earth again and again. I'm like, well, this, this is definitely, this is definitely a vampire reference. And then it wasn't. So I just wondered if, was there ever any intention that it was going to be about vampires? Were you, I mean, that the, there were nods as well to the yellow wallpaper and all of these other things as well. Like, was that something that you did on purpose or was that just subconsciously how it came to you? It was never vampires. I wrote a vampire novel called Certain Dark Things a few years before. And so I did kind of my, vamp- my take on vampires. So Mexican Gothic was supposed to be but but certain dark things was very much kind of a cyberpunk adjacent mm. kind of novel very much in a more urban fantasy vein rather than a dracula take and for mexican gothic i wanted to go back to the 19th century gothic and twist around some of our ideas about it and the frame for that one really became uh, both eugenics and the scientific aspect that permeates Mexican Gothic, which I have knowledge of for many years, have been interested in fungi and in mycology. And so I wove that into it. It is technically a science fiction novel, if you kind of dig a little bit, bit deep about it, because unlike something in the vein of The Turn of the Screw, where there is, if, if you take the supernatural avenue of that one although it could also be psychological in that one the case is ghosts and so it's Mm. obviously something that has no rational force and Mexican gothic is probably adjacent more to things like Frankenstein in that sense once you find out what's the answer there but no it was it was never supposed to be vampires but it was it was kind of fun that some people just kind of assumed that that would be the case and and a lot of people I, I've had people who really like the answer that I came up with with mm. the fact that this is kind of scientific adjacent and it fits very well with the frame of eugenics and 19th century science racialized science that I was looking at but there's some people who really have told me that they hate it that they really wanted vampires or ghosts and they don't like the answer because they kind of believe that a gothic should always have a supernatural component to it even though if you look at some very famous or well-known gothics that I think about, 
really they're very they're scooby-doo narratives where it's not a ghost it was like you know farmer joe hiding in the barn pretending to be exactly. a killer pumpkin that sort of thing so that so it was also a play on that trope um and but some people really don't you know don't really like it and they would have preferred vampires or werewolves or something of that ilk that they might have perhaps seen before oh that's that must be that must be particularly annoying now, i really like the answer that you came up with i i like that you were subverting you know our, our expectations in a way um, well mine anyway i remember reading in certain dark things when you were talking about the 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 life of or the journey of that book and saying that you tried, I think, to get it published after Twilight had just come out. The market was like bled dry or something. And I wanted to actually talk to you about how, you know, my expectations and other readers' expectations, this obsession with with vampires, with werewolves, with these particular tropes. And why do you think we are quite, particularly with vampires, what do you think draws us to them again and again and again? Like, I think by now that we would have exhausted, you know, what we could do with them. But, you know, writers like yourself constantly proving us wrong, that there's still more to say. In a way we did financially, because what happened was that it was this big cratering of the market. And I remember when it happened, first there was this very big demand for certain kinds of vampire narratives, romantic vampires, basically. Mm. And then suddenly nobody, if you said vampires, like basically editors would shut the door in your face. And it's just this moment where you couldn't just not sell it. And the same thing happens with other things. It goes through cycles, zombies or whatever you may may want go through these sort of moments where it's no longer popular and you just cannot sell it but you know vampires and other types of really popular kind of monsters are so easily embedded in people's psyches that in a way they're very easy to sell if the market is eager for them because you don't have to explain them as much as other things if you're talking about certain let's say jewish folklore which i know very little about if you're talking about Jewish folklore and certain types of Jewish monsters, knowing the rules of that kind of world, that kind of monster, what goes and what doesn't is difficult if you've never been part of the community. And I think people may have a harder kind of leaping point into that. But when you're talking about vampires, they've been, they're very much kind of like a universalized sort of monster, even though you would imagine that there might be local particulars, but it's very much a universalized kind of monster because a lot of us or all of us, you know, know Dracula and, and we go back to this archetype. It's no longer a monster. It's an archetype that everybody knows and feeds off and whether it's werewolves, certain kinds of, were of shape-shifting creatures. Um, it's not only werewolves, depending on the folklore, but we kind of go through world werewolves and certain types of werewolves and vampires and certain types of vampires. So I think it's just the ease of that kind of creature in accessing it makes it very appealing to, to people. And there's also these long kind of histories where things mutate and you get to this kind of standard where everybody, for example, associates romanticism with vampires. And so it becomes this very natural thing that if you want to tell a romantic story, you have a vampire kind of hand in hand. You don't think about having a Gorga romance story, although technically you could have Medusa falling in love with somebody if you wanted to do that take. So it's just very kind of malleable and appealing. It's almost like a Marvel Universe kind of thing where everybody comes to it with the same base level of appreciation and just consume one other thing. And the bad thing about that, when you get to that point, is that people get tired of it. At one point, they just want vampires, but this one make him have a purple jacket. And then eventually it becomes burn them with fire and never want to see them again. So I found myself in that 
in that point in time where nobody wanted to kind of look at vampires. But it's just almost like a rite of passage, I think, for writers. Everybody has a vampire story. Everybody has a Lovecraftian story. There's just these basics that we all kind of toy with in this universe. And we don't all have a golem story inside of us. And, you know, there's some reasons for it that are probably not very good that have to do with cultural hegemony, but it's just the way it kind of is. What is a book that absolutely terrifies you as a reader? Like, is there is there one book that you still find completely terrifying to this day? Actually, horror fiction doesn't tend to terrify me. And I think that's kind of one of the mistakes that we make when we make think about horror fiction is that sometimes people will say, oh, this is a bad book. For example, mm. maybe Kiroga is bad because he doesn't scare me. And so therefore it's failing. But horror fiction is just like any genre. It's both the history and the conversation, the history of it, of several books, and also the conversations it's having with other books within that same category that makes something horror or not. And horror is not about giving you necessarily a heart attack. It's about creating a mood of anxiety and dread. And sometimes it is scary, maybe really scary for somebody. And sometimes it isn't, depending on a personal level. And horror doesn't have to be truly horrifying to be effective. And I mentioned The Turn of the Screw, which is a very quiet novel about ghosts and about hauntings and the past coming back to the present. But it's not necessarily a kind of thing that I think most modern readers would be awake at night, shivering in the cold. And conversely, some people may read zombie novels where the zombies are eating people alive and may just be like, well, that's not really very terrifying because it's highly unrealistic or gigantic spiders, whatever you want to call it. So horror is really, I think that when we focus only on that emotional aspect of did it scare me or not? We're missing a lot of what horror is trying to do as, as a genre. I'm not particularly scared and have never been particularly scared about the narratives that I read. I, mm-hmm. and I, re- I read quite a bit, but I do find the way that certain writers use horror to be very interesting. And so Stephen Graham Jones is somebody that I think has been doing some very interesting things with slasher films in his last novel where he is taking this genre, this category that we're all kind of familiar with, the slasher film, and spinning it around and having it told kind of from the point of view of a fan of this genre and how, when they're so involved with it, what, what is their reaction? And then we have books like The Naribe Due, who I recommended in my list of other books uh, besides Stephen King, who has the between, and it's a very kind of elusive book where you don't know what's happening. It's this man who almost died when he was a child and was saved from drowning by his grandmother. And then he begins to have these strange episodes and you don't know what's happening. Is there something supernatural or is this person simply losing his mind? And it really is an exploration, I think, of long-term grief and trauma within this very spooky context. And then you have things have gotten worse since we last spoke, which is told in the form of back and forth emails between two women who start chatting with each other and progressively becomes more and more disturbing. These seemingly normal conversations begin to acquire this element of dread where you know something bad is going to happen and something bad does happen. But again, it's not that I was terrified by any of these narratives, but they're all working and doing things that have to do with dread, with anxiety, with fears, and with us, with other things within, like uh, the only good Indians is playing with tropes, with genre in a specific way. Uh, Things have gotten worse is playing with the idea of the epistolary novel but or novella, but built now for a modern audience because Dracula is an epistolary novel. 
written with letters and telegrams and messages like that. And now we have a modern one where we've got emails going back and forth between two women. And we've got the between, which really is, you know, partially this drama about a man just dealing with his past and also has this kind of deep unsettling element of weirdness to it. So I think when we kind of let horror be and have different shapes, it becomes a much richer experience because I've read romances where I don't necessarily say, oh, well, I would like to marry the hero, (laughs) but I still think it's a great romance novel and we should do the same thing for horror. Even if it doesn't terrify us, we shouldn't be afraid to say that was a really interesting and very enriching and maybe even very fun experience, but I did not have a heart attack because it's okay, I think, to not necessarily have that kind of reaction to horror. As a horror fan, I've seen so many things that there's very few things that are probably going to scare me. And if anything scares me, it's going to be that there's a big spider near my bed, quite frankly, Same. <laughs> while I'm reading. <laughs> yeah. Not so much werewolves and vampires and serial killers, yes. Yeah, I'm the same. Yeah, complete arachnophobe. That is far more terrifying to me than a serial killer, which I don't think that that makes any logical sense, but there we are. <laughs> yeah. Fear is very personal, I guess, is in the end. And so when we demand that fear reaction from everything, we lose just the spectrum of, of the beauty of horror as a genre. That's so true. I completely agree with you. And I think that is a beautiful place for us to leave our discussion today. Well, Annabelle, this has been amazing. I am not sure I will sleep again, but that's fine. <laughs> We've barely had time to scratch a surface, though. So, you know, I might go out and buy a copy of Mexican Gothic and I will consider some of the other ones. And we'd love to hear from you. Send us your comments on comms at emirateslitfest.com or send it. What's what was that? What? I thought I heard something. Is there someone in your house? Stop it. Stop it. It's not funny. What's that? There's someone.